0: Hi, and welcome to the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast, hosted by me, Issa Robinson. I'm a registered associate nutritionist, nutritional therapist, and certified intuitive eating counsellor working in private practice based in London. I believe that the way in which we think and feel about food is just as important as what we put on our plates, and that all foods can fit as part of a healthy and balanced diet. When it comes to our health and nutrition, no one size fits all. This podcast aims to get at all the nuances, the cracks and crannies, and the 50 shades of grey when it comes to what it means to practice authentic wellbeing, hopefully helping us all to feel a little bit more empowered and at ease about our health. Of course, this podcast is purely for educational purposes and not a substitute for proper medical advice and treatment. Right, let's get to it. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the final episode of season one of the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast. I cannot believe we made it. Um, Thank you all so much for being part of this journey. And if you have been listening weekly, just genuinely thank you so much for being here. I have absolutely loved recording um, every episode of this podcast, and getting a chance to have conversations with so many amazing, inspiring, and knowledgeable individuals. So, I really hope that you have loved it. Today's episode is absolutely no exception. And just before I get to it, I just want to say that uh, we haven't got a sponsor for this episode and haven't for the last couple, which is totally okay. Um, but if you have a chance or time to leave us some feedback, whatever's coming up, please feel free to be honest on Apple Podcasts or drop us a review. I would be so, so grateful. It literally takes a couple of minutes and it would really mean the world as it helps us grow and helps more people find out about us. So fingers crossed we might even come back with a season two. In today's episode, we are speaking with Mimi Cole, who runs the Instagram page, The Lovely Becoming, on all things orthorexia and when healthy eating goes too far. And I think for many people maybe listening, there's a sense that, oh, but I'm just eating healthily, or maybe even what is what is the issue there? And I think we have seen a boom of clean eating and healthy eating and healthy alternatives. And I think it's only really now that we're starting to see some of the fallout and really kind of gaining a little bit more knowledge of some of the harms of when healthy eating gets a little bit sinister or functions as something else. And no one better to have this conversation with than Mimi who in this episode also really bravely uh, shares some of her own personal experience about her recovery from orthorexia. And I was so grateful to Mimi for this because I think really hearing from someone's lived experience can help us to feel less alone if this is something that we are going through ourselves. Mimi is a graduate student and she's currently pursuing her master's degree in clinical rehabilitation and mental health counseling. She has worked as a resident patient associate in various levels of care for individuals with eating disorders. And she uses her lived experience and academic knowledge to share about eating disorders and OCD. Mimi also loves coffee shops, girl after my own heart, writing and reading and connecting with new people. Mimi, thank you so much for coming on. And without further ado, here she is, on orthorexia and when healthy eating goes too far. So welcome to the podcast Mimi. It is so exciting to have you here today. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, thank you for coming on. I know that We've had this in the pipeline for um, a long, long time, and I was really, really keen to speak with you on this topic as I know it's something um, that you have um, done a lot of um, research in and um, have your own course um, on. So we'll come to what that topic is in a second. But before we get into it, I was hoping that you might be able to introduce yourself and share a little bit more about your work with the listeners.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, I am uh, working on my master's degree to become a therapist, um, and I'm really passionate about disordered eating and eating disorders, as well as obsessive compulsive disorder um, and the realities of what those look like. I think there's a lot of misconceptions around both, um, and so I'm really passionate about mental health um, and making sure that people have, um, feel like they're heard and seen um, and, and feel like they know um, how much goodness they have to offer to this world.
0: Yeah um well such um important work there Mimi and thank you so much for sharing that and you mentioned there you were doing your um master's to become a therapist and um I'm I was just curious have you always wanted to uh be in this work
1: no definitely not it um so I when I was growing up I wanted to be a bunch of different things but when I was um in high school, I wanted to be a doctor for a little while. Um, And then I I majored in special education when I went into college. Um, And then I changed my mind kind of a a third of the way through. And uh, I started doing therapy when I first started college. And um, I really enjoyed uh, my therapist, all they helped space for me. And so I wanted to do the same thing for other people.
0: Amazing. So it was through your own experience of working with a therapist that you um, kind of decided that that was something that you wanted to do in support of others.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: And I love stories like that because I feel like, um, often I I feel like, and, and please feel free to disagree with me, that Um, Many individuals that perhaps work as therapists or even as dietitians, particularly in the eating disorder and disordered eating space, um, may have had their own experience um, with either disordered eating or their own experiences in therapy. And um, I feel like that can be a really powerful thing that we can bring to our profession when we've maybe um, been in that space ourselves or been through um, the therapy ourselves.
1: Absolutely. I think that lived experience is so important and such an asset. And I think it's something that really benefits our clients and isn't something that is a bad thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it starts to almost remove maybe some of the um, stigma attached to some mental health conditions as well that it's not a bad thing. It's, um, well, that it's never a bad thing, um, first of all. um, And also, seeing how we can um, use that experience in, in um, a different kind of way or view it in a different kind of way and end up actually supporting others. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned there as well, I thought it was really interesting, uh, talking about how um, disordered eating and obsessive compulsive disorder and eating disorders can be a little bit misunderstood. Um, and that's what you've been looking at in your master's. And I was just curious to hear a little bit more about um about that and about what what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so with eating disorders, um, less than 6% of people with eating disorders are underweight. But usually when we think about them, we think about people who are emaciated, um, who are um, upper class, who are white, um, and we really miss a lot of the faces of different identities um, who have eating disorders. Uh, And so it's really important to understand that anyone can have an eating disorder, anyone of any gender identity, any sexual orientation, any religion, any um, body size or shape is important. And that there's more than just anorexia and bulimia. Um, There's so many different types of eating disorders that are just as uh, clinically significant um, that we aren't talking about as much. And so it's important to bring awareness to the fact that like you might be struggling and not know it because of the stereotypes that we have around eating disorders. Um, and then with obsessive compulsive disorder usually when we think of that we think of someone who's like got a cork or who is like likes to be clean and organized or wash their hands a lot um, and that's just not the reality of um, a lot of people's experience with OCD. You can have symmetry or contamination in OCD, but it's not something that you enjoy or are like, oh my gosh, I have OCD, it's so fine. Like it's really debilitating.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so there's various themes including, but not limited to um, harm related themed OCD, um, sexually intrusive or taboo thoughts. Um, there's also hit and run, perfectionism, just right, et cetera.
0: Yeah, wow, so much more than perhaps we, again, see stereotyped or portrayed in the media. Mm -hmm. And Mimi, I'm so grateful to you for um, raising that important issue of how uh, so much of um, the conversation around eating disorders can miss out so many um, kind of representations, um, so many faces, I think you said, and how um, important it is that we start to shift that conversation, because as you said, people may actually be experiencing eating disorders and not know that they're struggling or feel inhibited from reaching out for help or indeed there may be healthcare care professionals that um, aren't sort of looking for symptoms in certain populations or doing the relevant investigations which means that some people might not be getting the support that they are worthy and deserving of. Absolutely yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I also really um, thought it was interesting how you mentioned that there are more eating disorders than anorexia and bulimia. And I know that something that you do a lot of work in is orthorexia. Um, And I was just wondering if you might be able to maybe define what that is for us.
1: Orthorexia is an eating disorder that's characterized by obsessions with clean right or healthy eating Um, and so it might look like skipping events because you're worried about the ingredients in foods. um, That might be served you might look like avoiding going to restaurants, because you're worried about what's in the food preparing food a certain way like only baked or only raw, for example, Um, being. Um, spending a lot of time reading labels in grocery stores and obsessing over what's the healthiest option. Um, And so it's really uh, pathological or kind of uh, a negative disease kind of oriented um, experience rather than, you know, like a healthy uh, endeavor.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's so um, interesting to kind of hear because um, I think you touched on so many things that may be really outwardly praised a lot of the time. I mean, not when it becomes pathological, but you mentioned things like clean eating, reading labels, um, only having baked or raw sorts of foods, Um, things that perhaps especially, and I mean, I'm talking from the UK and I know the US is slightly different, but from sort of where I'm sitting, and this is very unscientific, so I apologize around, 2012-ish, we saw um, in the UK this rise of sort of wellness, the clean eating movement, uh, kale, all those sorts of things, you know, all of those things might be sort of outwardly praised. This is great. This is healthy eating. This is um, how we live longer. And I guess um, what I'm kind of hearing from you, and I completely agree, this is why we're having this conversation, is that actually this can be really harmful.
1: Yeah, so um, it's really... Hard because for one thing, it's not recognized in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that we use to diagnose eating disorders, and so sometimes providers don't know more about orthorexia, and then also a lot of the behaviors are seen as healthy, like we talked about, um, and so people don't recognize them as harmful, um, or or that people might be struggling with them rather than kind of praising them and saying like this is a good thing, um, but you know everything can be harmful when you go to extremes. Um, and also these behaviors when we really look at them are very binary and black and white baking oriented, very good and bad um, uh, distinctions that are, aren't really helpful for a flexible relationship with food.
0: Yeah, no, thank you so much for that. And I think one thing I um, really wanted to touch on that you brought there is that orthorexia isn't actually officially recognized as Um, an eating disorder by the diagnostic manual which is for anyone um, who perhaps isn't um, so aware it's this kind of like big manual that sort of says what kind of uh, classifies a a diagnosis and I think there's a lot of faults with that Mimi I don't know what you think.
1: Oh definitely there's a lot of like eating disorders that don't fit into those categories and there's a lot of um, weight stigma that goes into those diagnoses as well
0: yeah yeah absolutely and um you know i'm I'm curious do you feel like there's any particular reason that hasn't been picked up yet in terms of an officially recognized eating disorder
1: yes so a couple reasons i think one of them is that people don't want to believe that the clean eating movement is harmful and we still praise thinness and we still praise good clean eating as a means of being good Mm -hmm. um and so i think people are hesitant to separate it um and understand that it can be a disorder as well, and that it's not always healthy or helpful to be obsessive about food. Um, Another reason is a lack of research. So orthorexia wasn't coined or um, quote discovered until the 1990s, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's not been a long time to gather data about what makes an eating disorder um, orthorexia and what maybe is less pathological. Um, And so they need to have uh, evidence to make sure it's sensitive, to um, make sure not everybody's diagnosed with an eating disorder, but that Mm -hmm. um, people who are struggling can receive treatment and help.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Thank you so much for sharing that. And actually, I don't know if this is um, interesting, but I wrote my undergraduate dissertation on conceptualizing the Eat Clean Movement. And I would have finished that in 2016 um and I read actually um I think he saw, um, some Bratman and his book yeah when he coined the term orthorexia um, and I think it was 1995 and mm-hmm. I did lots of, of reading around the topic for that and really looked at how clean eating was a mask for disordered eating and eating disorders um so that was quite interesting it was my geography degree. Um, so I really just t- tried to make it into something that I was really interesting in, but I found it really fascinating. And also to think that actually, yeah, this is really a, a relatively recent phenomenon in terms of um, orthorexia. Um, not that it necessarily hasn't been seen before, but that this was the first time it was actually studied and conceptualized and we're still a way of actually getting it officially Officially recognized in the, the DSM 5. Not that that means that anyone out there who might be experiencing this is experiencing anything that isn't worthy and deserving again of support from right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. That's so interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think um, something else um, that I think is really interesting is. Um, Uh, a research paper that was done by Pixie Turner and that actually looked at how sort of increased social media usage is linked in with increased symptoms of orthorexia Um, and I just wondered if you had any kind of thoughts on that the link between maybe social media and orthorexia.
1: Yeah I mean I'm not surprised at all and definitely that's why a lot of um, advocates will say it's important to diversify by your feed and make sure what you're looking at and consuming is helpful for your relationship with food and body and movement. Um, and so if you're constantly comparing what you eat to other influencers who maybe you don't even know what they're eating in between those meals, you don't know if they actually ate that or something else, but all you're seeing is this picture of quote, perfect food. Um, and so you're thinking like, I have to eat that way, or I have to eat less, et cetera. Um, And so that can be really harmful and contribute towards disordered eating for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it's um, so harmful. And, you know, I also think even this sense of perfect eating being promoted, um, you know, I always put a big question mark there. What is perfect eating? Is there such a thing?
1: Exactly. And I don't think that even is a real reality. Um, But when you're stuck in diet culture, it can feel like there's a certain way you have to eat. That's good and
0: superior. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that starts to get into some of the black and white thinking. Um, And this is the Fifty Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast, um, where we are always looking for the gray and the nuance. And Mimi, as you are kind of in your master's um, and training to become a therapist, I was wondering if you had any um, kind of tools or ways that... um, Any listeners might be able to um, challenge black and white thinking or or question that black and white thinking at all?
1: Yeah, so I think one great example is eggs, for example. Um, Because sometimes people will say eggs have a lot of protein, they're really good for you, etc. Some people will say you can only eat the egg whites, some people will say, eggs are really bad for you in general, no matter if you eat the egg white or the yolk. And so there's a lot of controversial opinions about eggs and and about different foods. So if you do research on different um, superfoods, for example, sometimes they're in and sometimes they're out um, in terms of health benefits. And so we really can't trust um, when people say that this is a good food always, um, and this is a bad food. And our... um, our ability to be flexible with food is actually a lot healthier than being rigid around it. Um, And in addition, you know, one food isn't going to make or break your health. Um, And so it's really important to have a flexible um, relationship with food for your own mental health, for your emotional health, and for your physical health as well, Um, because you're able to communicate with other people, nourish your body, um, gather around food and and cultural um, different opportunities without being, um, judgmental and kind of saying like, that's not a good food. Um, and so it's really important to consider access to food and cultural factors and, um, lots of different incorporations.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Eggs is such a good example. Um, I really like that. And I think I also always like to go back to something that you said earlier, which is like nothing in excess is, um, gonna necessarily be, um, a great thing. And I think, um, sometimes when I'm I'm talking about these topics with clients I really like to bring up examples like I don't know um orange fruits and vegetables and you know we would never think that um you know there may be too much thing as like sweet potato or carrots but we can get something called um which is when we get the orange pigments in our skin um which isn't necessarily harmful but can be a um, sometimes something that we see in individuals with with orthorexia and um, in an extreme presentation where we think okay that's maybe too much of a good thing um, so it doesn't necessarily matter if we're talking about honey carrots or we're thinking about any other food that actually too much or, or an excess is potentially not going to be as beneficial as having a real balance which is ultimately what our bodies naturally really kind of like and crave um, and I guess for anyone maybe um, who might feel like they have some black and white thinking around different foods. I really like what you brought Mimi that actually you could probably take any food and probably go on the internet although I'm not sure I'd necessarily advise doing that (laughs) and find ways that it may be a miracle food and find ways that it may be kind of like not in fashion and ultimately no one food can cure us or kill us and Um, I think that came from Evelyn Trebley, but I really like it. And that a mix of different things is gonna be by far and large, the most beneficial.
1: Exactly. And I think it's really tricky too, because the eating disorder can latch onto that and say like, well, I shouldn't eat sugar in excess because then that's bad. But I think our bodies are a lot smarter than we lead on to. And um, also sometimes even when it looks like we're eating a lot of sugar, for example, sometimes that just means we've been restricted from it. Um, and so it's important to recognize that, um, balance is really, like you said, what our body craves and, um, it might not look like the balance you want that day, but over time and overall, it really, um, you know, will tell you what it needs.
0: Yeah. I, I love that. And thank you so much for, for raising that important point, um, because I think that's something that might also come into this perfect eating that there has to be this perfect balance across the day as though we magically reset at midnight, whereas it's actually the balance over weeks and months and the body can guide us in that very naturally for the most part um, because it's really smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Mimi, I'm curious, you know, for somebody kind of on The ground who might be experiencing orthorexia I feel like it it must be quite hard to to kind of know you know where would you say the line might be from somebody who might be kind of having a a kind of healthy eating maybe phase that's maybe not pathological or maybe teetering into disordered eating and where's that line between that and somebody that might be experiencing you know orthorexia um you know what might somebody look for um, either on the ground in terms of um what they may be experiencing or for um a loved one who might be um worried about someone how do we kind of get at that line
1: mm-hmm. i think it's really gray um and i think it's important to consider um, can you add Um, have an add not subtract mentality so what that means is basically are you looking to add more vegetables and fruits into your diet are you looking to add more whole grains without substituting or sacrificing things that you enjoy and are pleasurable or are you looking to replace and cut out because that mentality is really disordered and harmful for your health and well-being unless you have allergies which people always are saying like I have an allergy but I think that food sensitivities Um, are sometimes overdiagnosed as well.
0: I just wanted to jump in here to talk about food intolerance testing or IgG tests, because as Mimi said, food intolerances can often be diagnosed quite freely and frequently. And the BDA, which is the British Dietetic Association, supports that there's currently no convincing evidence to support the use of IgG tests. And at the moment, sadly, the only way to really diagnose an intolerance is through actually working with a dietician to remove that food for a period and then reintroduce it and look at symptoms. Um, if we're thinking about an allergy, we're using IgE tests, which measure, measure a true allergy. However, these IgG tests often measure the foods that we've eaten recently and so can often show huge lists of foods that we might be intolerant to but are actually the ones that we may have eaten last week or in the days before. What I don't want to do is discredit anyone's symptoms. So if you are experiencing digestive discomfort or symptoms that are feeling um, worrying for you please please try and speak with a weight inclusive non-diet practitioner or dietitian and um, please go through that means of having support with um, your symptoms rather than turning to these IgG tests which are often also really promoted by influencers and not grounded in science.
1: I used to think I was sugar intolerant, which is just not really a thing at all. Um, And so really sometimes it's just your body's not used to um, incorporating back those other foods that it used to enjoy like fried foods or sugary foods. You might not feel good when you're eating them if you've only eaten non-fried foods or non-sugary foods for a long time. Um, But if you slowly incorporate them back in, which is totally fine and good, um, sometimes it's a little easier on your body um, and so I'd say that, uh, it really depends for everyone. What one person does might be disordered and what one other person does might be not disordered and they might be doing the same thing depending on their mindset and their ability to be flexible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what I'm hearing is it, it's less about the like behavior itself, right? Like having a smoothie bowl for breakfast, it's about the kind of intention and emotional, um, experience that goes with that is it a smoothie bowl for breakfast because that's what one fancies and it's kind of like adding in something and they can add lots of toppings and it's really enjoyable and like feels good um, versus I have to have a smoothie bowl um because anything else is really anxiety provoking and there's a fear of other foods and um maybe this same person was invited out for breakfast but couldn't go because he needed to have the smoothie bowl it would be kind of it's, it's not about necessarily the actual food but about some of the stuff that's going on around that absolutely yes yeah and that must be really um challenging i guess um to to really to really get at him it, it must be really hard i guess i'm thinking about um uh, a parent or a loved one um, kind of observing different behaviors, it must be really kind of hard to know, I guess, what might be just kind of fun and exploratory and what might actually be something that um, we want to kind of pick up on and, and ask about.
1: Yeah, it is really tricky. And I think it's important to, um, I think that everyone should, if they have access to work with a um, weight-inclusive dietitian, um, because even if it's once a year or something, um, to just check in and see how you're doing around food. Um, because, you know, when we're hurt, we go to a doctor. When we're feeling mentally like unstable or we're feeling like our emotions we need some help with, we go to a therapist. But when we're struggling with food, we usually go to the Internet instead of going to a dietitian. Um, and so I think that's important. And also asking questions and getting curious and saying, like, I'm, I'm wondering why you chose that for breakfast today. You know, maybe not every day and being like, why did you choose that for breakfast? But um, just being curious and asking questions is really helpful.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, Mimi, in the spirit of that, are there questions that we might be able to ask ourselves? You know, for anyone listening that maybe um, is a little bit unsure or is um, kind of um, feeling stuff kind of coming up around this conversation, are there Um, non-judgmental questions that we may ask in a curious manner um, that we can direct inwards?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think some that come to mind are, am I allowed to have the foods that I want? Like, do I have permission from myself and not from the world or other people to have the foods that I enjoy? Um, Do I have permission to eat to my fill? Like, do I have permission to eat a whole avocado instead of a quarter avocado, or something like that, um, or what portion I want, um, and that feels good for me. Um, and how is my relationship with my body? Do I eat because I want to change my body, or do I eat to nourish it and to celebrate it?
0: Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's really um, a really nice kind of um, start there in terms of some questions that we might be able to to ask ourselves um and maybe even journal out um because i think with some of this stuff it can be such an internal experience as well that that might be a nice place to start absolutely um and i also think that there can be a lot of pushback on this topic um a lot of this answer oh but you know what's the problem um health is really important um you know what's wrong if if I just want to eat in a healthy way. Um, And I think particularly it's something that that I'm kind of seeing is perhaps for individuals in recovery from an eating disorder, um, another kind of eating disorder, this sense of, well, this is a really great um, kind of way and maybe it is a foothold, but I guess, would you be able to speak to that at all? You know, this sense of what's the problem?
1: Yeah, I mean, it feels really good sometimes but it can also be really distressing. And so I remember there were times where I would want to go to see a friend and eat birthday cake, but I would be so anxious about it that I wouldn't go or I would eat vegetables instead. And I think when it hinders us from connection with other people, from being able to receive gifts of food and acts of love, for example. So if someone brings brownies to work or your classroom and you're, you have to say no because you know, you don't eat sugar then that's going to be really hard for that person who took the time to lovingly make it for you. Um, and there are just a lot of different ways that we miss out on life and connection with other people when we are rigid about our food rules. Um, and then it's really just not helpful for getting a variety of food in, um, for experiencing joyful and pleasurable things, which are, are so important to being human
0: and, and being able to enjoy life. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And, um, I really love how you touched on connection and quality of life. And I know when I'm, uh, working with somebody, I always like to kind of keep that in the, in the forefront of, um, perhaps why we're leaning into some discomfort in either, um, increasing intake or increasing variety of foods. Um, And especially with kind of exposures, it's the sense of um, this is our why for being able to enjoy the birthday cake, um, if that's something that's important to um, the particular person that I'm working with, or maybe it's to be able to travel um, or any number of those things. And I always love coming back to that um, study by Harvard, That showed that social connection is the biggest predictor of longevity, Um, more than any food or any amount of exercise. And yet um, it's not really being promoted on Instagram as this panacea of health.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And I love that that finding.
0: Yeah. Um, So I'm hearing, so this sense of it's harmful um, because it can take those things away. I think something that um, Bratman also kind of talked about in his book is that often it can start with taking out just a couple of foods. Like maybe it's um, some of the obvious ones like taking out some dairy or taking out some gluten or taking out some sugar, all of which by the way are wonderful foods to include in our diet and can absolutely be included in a healthy and balanced diet um and then it can start to include more and more foods often to the point where somebody's diet is so depleted and restricted um, that um, they can end up um extremely malnourished and with a very with compromised physical health and I think that also kind of um plays into it or into the harms um and actually I think that um also one of the reasons why orthorexia maybe hasn't been so um, then put in the DSM-5 because perhaps of the ways in which it might overlap with perhaps anorexia and maybe even um, OCD. I don't know if you have any kind of thoughts on on those links.
1: Yeah, definitely. And like you said, um, it's important to consider that sometimes it might seem like I'm just cutting out this and that, but things start to get scarier and scarier to include and things start to look more Unhealthy, and so usually it gets more narrow and narrow. Um, and then with OCD um, and anorexia, you know, um, if you think of an eating disorder like orthorexia as a set of obsessions with clean eating and compulsions of changing the way you eat, prepare your food, etc., um, then you can really see a connection between obsessive thinking and compulsive being behaviors to reduce the anxiety around food mm-hmm. um, and so I think there's a lot of overlap definitely between OCD and eating disorders and I've seen numbers around 40 percent of comorbidity um, so there's definitely something there
0: yeah yeah absolutely um, thank you for for sharing that and that's such a high number that yeah definitely um saying that that link Mimi I'm curious as Um, a therapist in training again, Um, how you feel like, um, you know, if somebody was concerned that they may have um, orthorexia or orthorexic like symptoms, where might you advise somebody to start or what might be kind of that process of um, recovery from that or kind of coming out of that?
1: Yeah, I would definitely work with a non-diet, weight-inclusive dietitian, um, which is a lot of words, but looking for those are key. Um, And then that just means that they won't tell you um, to cut out foods or promote disordered eating um, and that they'll uh, celebrate your body size no matter where it lands, which is really important um, when it relates to set point and really allowing your body to find where it needs to be. Um, And then with recovery, It usually looks like some food exposures and so, and challenging your beliefs around food. And so some bibliotherapy, which is just reading about um, diet culture, reading about um, weight inclusive care and and why our bodies need to find their set point. Um, And then also food exposures might be slowly incorporating back those foods that you have cut out and are scary to
0: you. Yeah, yeah. I love that term bibliotherapy. I have never heard of that before.
1: Yeah, I I learned it this year and it's like reading um, as homework to learn about um, like the topic.
0: I absolutely love that. And I feel like I've done so much bibliotherapy myself and I just never had a word for it until now, but I really feel like it's um, such um, an amazing eye-opening way of, I guess, reframing maybe some of our taken for granted norms. Yeah, Absolutely. I don't know if you've read um the Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf. No, but
1: I've heard of it, and I, I probably have it. But
0: <laughs> yeah, I um I found that one really kind of eye opening. Um, and yeah, and over the years, I guess the the bibliotherapy has uh, made an impact. So thank you for sharing that new word with me. Um, I also thought it was really um great how you perhaps stressed the importance of a non-diet weight inclusive practitioner and I know that's something I see and I don't know if this is something that you see or have heard about is sometimes um, clients come to me and they've maybe had an experience with um, a nutrition professional in the past and this isn't to say that the nutritional professional was bad or wrong just perhaps didn't have an understanding of of eating disorders and they were put on all sorts of very restrictive diets perhaps even if there was a history of food insecurity or an eating disorder and it has really exacerbated the symptoms and some of the dietary restraint or restriction um, in the process so I think really important um, perhaps to be seeking out support from somebody that um, has that awareness and can really make sure that you're getting the absolute best service that you can possibly have um, for your overall well-being.
1: Yes, that's very important to look for. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um so uh the other thing I was um kind of wondering about a little bit more is this sense of kind of food exposures and what that might entail and look like.
1: Yeah, so you can make a hierarchy um, which just looks like like ranking which foods are the scariest and which ones are maybe the most safe feeling um, and starting at like, you know, incorporating enough of your safe foods to nourish your body adequately. And then maybe each week bringing in a new food. So you might um, have therapy once a week and you might do cupcakes for one week or you might do pasta and cupcakes the next week um, and just really build that uh, habituation, which just means getting used to it. Um, and so being able to really um, lean into the discomfort and, until those foods feel safe and okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's this sense perhaps of um, intentionally um, exposing ourselves to the anxiety-provoking food in order to, um, I guess, begin to trust that it's okay that nothing bad will happen and for the anxiety over time to be diminished.
1: Mm -hmm. and I think one of the key things too is that you know you might get sick and you might not feel good and that might be more of your anxiety coming up um but over time you kind of learn that like it's it's okay and like your body might change and that might be the bad thing that you're scared is going to happen but you might learn that that's not really a bad thing that's just your body um needing to do what it needs to do on a nourished um belly and it's really important to consider flexibility around food, challenging systems of fat phobia and weight stigma. Um, And the more you learn, the more it kind of feels like food is just, you know, another thing that we use to nourish ourselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I really like what you brought there. I think it really um, perhaps quite useful and and interesting for listeners, the sense that you might have um, the food that maybe um, feels really scary and it might actually induce some kind of um, negative reaction. Now, I guess there's something um, distinct from kind of coming up in hives or like, you know going into anaphylactic shock or something like that. vis a be maybe kind of feeling a bit bloated or um, kind of feeling a bit meh. Um, and I guess I was thinking you were talking about kind of the latter, like it's, it's not kind of a in kind of objective allergic reaction, it's just something that feels a little bit uncomfortable and how sometimes that might come from the anxiety that we have around the food versus the actual food itself. I was wondering if you might be able to maybe talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so for example, when I started eating fried foods again, it was really uncomfortable and sometimes I felt sick after eating it. Um, But I learned that over time, it was just my body not being used to it. And that might sound confusing because you're like, I don't want my body to be used to quote fried or bad foods. Um, but I think it's really important for, for owning your right to pleasure, for um, enjoying gifts um, and, and also being able to incorporate a variety of foods um, and, and recognizing that like taste and pleasure are, are such beautiful and good parts of connection and community and there's nothing bad about eating foods um, that are prepared a certain way, eating foods with less, that are less nutritionally dense, um, and those foods can provide some nourishment for our bodies as well.
0: Yeah. Mimi, thank you so much for sharing your personal experience with that. And I feel like that might be so, so helpful for others to um, hear and how you went through that process. Um, and uh, began to connect to um, owning pleasure and I guess being in the discomfort initially that, that came with that. And if it's all right with you, I was just wondering if um, there was anything else maybe um, from your experience in either leaning into discomfort or anything that you feel might be helpful for anyone who is embarking on their own journey of recovery or is thinking about getting some support.
1: Yeah, I would say challenge the ideas of what makes you a good or bad person, and even the idea that there are distinctly good or bad people. And that's kind of an abstract concept, but I think when we tie the food we eat to how good or bad we are, we make assumptions about other people based on the food they eat, and we don't look at their character, we don't look at the things that they um, value and the things that they do. and the people that they are. And so I think even when we think it's isolated to, well, I eat good doesn't mean I'm um it means I'm a good person, for example, you know, that has assumptions about other people. Um, and that can be really harmful. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, I always hate that phrase, you are what you eat, because mm-hmm. um, you know, who you are as a person, your values, your personal attributes, what you have to give to the world why people love you probably has very little to do with what you had for breakfast and so much more about what is on the inside Mm -hmm. and if it's all right with you I was just curious I feel as though that um, sitting with discomfort piece is um, perhaps a topic that could span a whole season of a podcast but if it's okay with you and you wouldn't mind sharing was there anything in terms of being with discomfort that was um, particularly helpful for you or that you learned in your training that um, you particularly like to share with listeners?
1: Yeah so um, uh, there's a metaphor called riding the wave and so our anxiety is kind of like a wave where it goes up and then it comes down on its own we don't have to do anything to um, make it come down. Um, And so engaging in disordered eating behaviors, for example, might bring the anxiety down faster, but over time it's going to get higher faster, and and then it's going to um, spike up more. Um, And so it's important to practice letting our bodies just assist us in bring that anxiety down through deep breathing, through mindfulness, through grounding exercises um, as effective coping mechanisms and also as ways for our anxiety to spike up a little less initially, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, almost a sense of um, riding the wave or I've heard it maybe um, called urge surfing before. Mm-hmm. This sense that um, our um, anxiety can almost like rise and fall like waves very naturally and um, engaging in a certain behavior, maybe it's of exercise or restriction or whatever it might be, can bring that anxiety down faster, um, although it maintains it over time. Mm-hmm. where we can practice surfing the wave and of course to anyone kind of listening, I would really, really recommend working with, again, a non-diet week inclusive um, therapist or psychologist because this is a really uh, challenging thing to do, but learning to ride that wave, our anxiety over time will come down naturally, but it's, um, it never will stay a 10 out of 10 in terms of intensity and severity Forevermore. more yeah would you agree with that because I would just like to um say that you are the professional in that space and I'm the nutrition professional so um definitely need to make sure that that I've got that right from you
1: yes yes that's my understanding <laughs>
0: um well Mimi it has been uh such a, a pleasure to speak with you um today on this topic um you know you're such a wealth of of information, both professionally, but also personally. And um, thank you again for sharing some of your own personal experience in in your recovery from orthorexia. And as we touched on at the beginning, um, sometimes that personal experience can give so many um, insights and also so much hope I think for anyone that maybe is feeling alone or trapped that um, you're not alone and that it is absolutely possible um, with support to break free and to reclaim that joy in eating, um, owning pleasure, I love that. And um, I guess focusing on the quality of life aspects and the social connection of which food is such uh, important part um, and such an enriching part
1: definitely thank you for having me on yeah
0: Mimi before we um, go I would just um, perhaps love it if you might be able to share where people can find you Um, I know you have a orthorexia online course so anything regarding that that people might be able to learn about or find and of course any kind of concluding comments that you might have for for anyone out there
1: yeah so you can find me on instagram at the dot lovely becoming my online course is um for clinicians on ocd and orthorexia Um, and so you can just send me a little dm um, asking for the link to that i should really put it on my website but i'll, I'll get to that <laughs> um, and then uh, you can email me through instagram just click the little contact button um, yeah yeah and Mimi, you have your own podcast yes i do <laughs> yes which it's is called great the by way.
0: which is great by the way <laughs> i really enjoyed your episode on polyvagal theory Um, which is all about our different nervous system responses. And I guess that ties in really well with some of the stuff we've been talking about today in terms of being with discomfort and leaning into discomfort and gives a bit of a scientific explanation around how our nervous system might be responding to different stimuli and why that can feel um, kind of challenging for us. And give a little bit of scientific grounding for that yes that's a great episode (laughs) (laughs) um well Mimi I hope we get to um do this again at some point and thank you again so much for coming on yeah thank you again okay well I will speak to you very soon so that was the amazing Mimi Cole from the lovely Becoming on orthorexia. And I just wanted to thank Mimi again so much for coming on and in particular for sharing her own personal experience in her recovery from orthorexia and what was really um, helpful for her in that process. Um, I think often recovering from an eating disorder or disordered eating can feel like a really lonely space and very often feel like we're swimming upstream. So I think it's really powerful when we can hear from someone else's experience and feel a little bit less alone. In particular, I also loved how Mimi talked about trying to reframe foods. She used the example of eggs, which I thought was a really great one. And just FYI, eggs are almost like the perfect food although there's no such thing as perfect, in that they contain actually most of our recommended daily amounts of lots of nutrients. Um, And that absolutely includes the yolk, which is also going to be all important for that pleasure. Um, And we can do this with loads of foods. And perhaps what I might invite you to do after this episode is if there is a food where it feels like there's a very strong black and white opinion on it, just have a go at writing it down in one column of an A4 page and then writing on the other side other kinds of thoughts or information that might reframe that thought and allow us to build a little bit of nuance and gray into the ways in which we are conceptualizing it. This can help us to have a little bit more psychological flexibility and allow us to move out of this black and white thinking and the way in which it can move into our food and create a lot of rigidity. Um, And actually, this is also going to help our overall nutrition and well-being because as we spoke about in this episode, naturally, our bodies thrive off variety and a whole range of different food and food groups. Um, I also just wanted to thank Mimi for introducing me to the term bibliotherapy. This is going to be something I'm going to be talking about a lot, lot more. So thanks, Mimi, so much for that. I can't believe that this concludes season one of the Fifty Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast. Ah! Um, It has been such a amazing experience doing this and thank you to each and every one of you for listening supporting um reviewing if you have done and just being a part of this and also a massive thank you to our sponsors as well will there be a season two i can't say for sure yet but watch this space and i will hopefully look forward to catching up with you all in some capacity soon Until then, I will wish you all a wonderful summer and I hope to catch up with you all soon. Bye!